Welcome to the Celebration Podcast. This podcast is dedicated to meaningfully transforming your thinking through exploration, knowledge, creativity, and connection. In each episode, our invited guests will share their authentic experiences and established expertise to inspire you to take positive action. The theme for this episode is Fearless Stories, in partnership with the Institute of Human Development and the Be Fearless Movement. The Fearless Stories format is where our guests share an incredible story of triumph over adversity or challenging circumstances. Atif Chowdhury is an award-winning social entrepreneur with a background in economic justice and disability inclusion projects. He is the co-founder of two amazing organisations, Diversity and Ability and Stay Tuned, both doing very different but equally meaningful things. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Atif? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm, uh, my name is Atif. I'm 46 years old. Um, not that that matters too much, I suppose, but just <laughs> the thing that people say. Um, I was born in the UK uh, and spent lots of time in different parts of the world, especially early childhood days, back and forth between the UK and Bangladesh. And I am the director of two organisations, and you really said them in a lovely way. Um, one is a social enterprise working to support marginalised families and farmers in the West Bank of Palestine, uh, who are really sadly living under military occupation. And there we created a trade justice, uh, part of a trade justice initiative called Zaytun, which became the world's first fair trade olive oil company. And we and we sell dates and couscous and things and try really try to connect UK consumers here with the social and economic realities and some of the injustices people in Palestine are having to face. And it's really wonderful that we're able to do that in a message in a bottle and to be able to raise equity and income from families that are having to endure this whilst the rest of the world is waiting for a political solution. Um, so that's day two. And it's in so many shops in every Oxfam shop in the country, really, and um, lots of shops across the country. The other is DNA, um, which is diversity and ability. And that's a social enterprise. And what we do, we do lots of things, really. I find it difficult to explain sometimes. But essentially, we are a large network of neurodivergent and neurodiverse learners who are quite extraordinary. Um, many of us with physical differences. Uh, what's traditionally seen as disabilities and what we try to do is look at how these differences and lived experiences can be a strong asset in reaching out to people who don't necessarily feel they're able to participate in wider society particularly in higher education so what we do is we try to make sure that we deliver support and connect to people and we use assistive technology to do that we mostly work in higher education and the profits that we make from working with universities we put into working to support anti-homeless values and individuals who desperately need life-changing support and access to technology that makes it easier when they're dealing with exclusion or a misunderstanding on neurodiversity it could be autism adhd dyslexia and it could be physical barriers uh, or physical disabilities many of these things really are preventing a lot of people and folks having good sense of belonging and choice so what we do is make sure this technology has meaning and we make sure that we're able to measure it well enough that it creates choices. And I hope some of those choices, and always, that some of those choices are degrees and jobs. That's an incredible introduction. And every time you tell me about both organisations, they're both doing such incredible things. 
I remember first hearing about Zaytun speech at the Meaning Conference in 2018 and how much of an impact it's had on the communities that it works with. And both of them are very community-driven organizations. What was the, the challenges that you wanted to solve with those organizations? You know, it's a tough thing to answer. I, I'm always, I always admire people who have an immediate answer for that. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I sometimes think language is far too clumsy to really do justice. You know, these things are really ethereal. And I, I, what I mean by that is, I don't think we knew what we were taking on. I don't think I knew what I was taking on when we started Zaytun. I knew that this is outrageous. I knew that so many families were really made to suffer for far too long. And that elements of this occupation was going into its 50th year, but I also felt that Palestine had become landless in so many ways, and the diaspora of so many refugees, and endless discussion about justice and injustice and belonging, that had gone on and on, way before my lifetime. Um, in fact, started when my father was just a young boy. Um, and so I think, for me, it was going to Palestine, learning from stories and families, and then realising how this terrible this is, and how we can campaign to, to say something more about it. But then realising, and this is true, that we can campaign and talk about it, but that's not necessarily going to stop it fast enough that it needs. And at the time when I was there, there were plans to build what has now become the occupation wall. And the size of that wall is immense. It's really, it's really, it's not, you know, for me to say in this podcast what that wall is. I just encourage people to look at it and try and understand what it might do to people's livelihoods and abilities to, to trade as well as see their families and loved ones. So um, a clock was ticking, and it was about saying, well, if this many families that cannot trade or sell the products they have, what would happen to them? Um, and so it was about trying to learn from those experiences and how people have endured this for so many years and how they've been fearless and, and in many ways not, because these are things that you are deeply afraid of happening to you or, and to your children. and. Um, being able to say, look, okay, well, look, if we can set up an olive oil company where we can trade it in the UK, we'll be teaching a lot of people in the UK about it. And by doing so, it's more than just saying, here's a leaflet about a place that's so terribly being treated. Rather, it's connecting people to a heritage and a product. And that has more meaning because the money that you bought from the product has already gone there. Rather than sometimes we look at charities and some people treat it with cynicism, some people are not sure what transparency is, and some people are not sure if it really makes a difference. And these are all natural cynicism that we survive through, I suppose. But for me, it was about saying, how do I connect people in the UK to families in Palestine? And how do, I, how do we get a product for them to see in their hands? Look, behind every bottle of olive oil, there is a family. Uh, and this family deserves to live just like, just like you and me. Uh, just like any other farming family anywhere in the, in the world. I don't know how we knew. I think if we really knew, and I often say this, if I really knew, as in we wrote a plan, and that plan said you could do a business in the most famous political conflict in the world, and then you could take products to one part of the country, knowing full well there'll be armies and blockades there, or you could take it to another part of the country, and you may face another set of armies and blockades and checkpoints, and et cetera, et cetera, and then you take it to another part, and the, the wall is there then what you have is a business model that doesn't work. On paper, this cannot work. And yet, here we are, you know, 15 years in, and so many people watching it, 20, you know, uh, crikey, behind just 10, 10 small villages, there are now 6,000 families 
or being able to stay on their land because of it. So I guess I'm not, not sure if I'm being clear, but sometimes you're so busy doing it, you're not really getting to stop where to ask whether or not. There's a plan. <laughs> yeah, if it's going to work, yeah. There's the Guardian title for you was the ethical oil barons. And I thought if you put that in a business plan, it probably wouldn't have had the same effect that you would have expected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And I said, like, I'm, I'm a dyslexic learner. I, I think sometimes you're working on intuition a lot. Um, that intuition is gut instinct. And a lot of it is, is, is sometimes audacity. Uh, and sometimes it's just because you can viscerally feel what it's like to be marginalised, to be lost, to be, to pretend that what you've got to say isn't good enough. Um, and so you answer that. Not all of us do. And some of us can get try to pushed away to know how to start doing that. But in my case, I think I found my voice in Palestine, working with families and young people and people that I can relate to in some ways, going through this and recognising, okay, well, look, if it's not easy for me, and it probably hasn't always been uh, as a young, young Bengali with, with a learning difference, often a strength and often not, in the UK. And yet here I am. And it wasn't easy. And yet if families and people and young folks can go to school facing this kind of odds against them, even weapons at times, aimed at them, and yet doing it anyway, then there's an awful lot I can do. There's an awful lot that I can push because it's not happening to me when I'm back here in the UK. Um, so I guess that's that, that, you know, it was pushing forward to be able to say, look, how do we really get people to be excited about a positive story of trade justice, a positive story of connection, a positive story of heritage, and through that, learning about the difficulties and the social realities that people are facing, rather than just saying, let's feel really bad about something that we've got no agency or control in. And just to give context for people, what is that experience like for Palestinian farmers at the moment? I suppose, you know, it's an intersectional discussion. And by that, I mean that I'm sure every farmer feels a different way because they're entitled to, just as a UK farmer might have a different story to their neighbours. Right now, we're watching, you know, we're watching the internationalisation of a pandemic, for example, and that's going to affect refugee camps a lot more. It's going to affect crowded places a lot more. It, as we've seen in the UK, it affects trade a, a lot more. In the case of Palestine, all of the above is there. But the additional issue is that every farming family is facing, at times, military curfews, is facing armies coming onto their villages and land and into their homes. And is also facing the idea that what they might produce as families and farmers may never ever get be sold. It may never ever cross a checkpoint. It may never even reach a destination where they can generate an income from it. Um, and that's heartbreaking. And that's how people often leave land. Or, or lose it. So th those things, I think, are collectives that many people are desperately, desperately trying to avoid. Um, and yet it's relentlessly happening anyway. And and, it, and sadly, it's not something that's just started to happen. It's been going on for so long. Thank you for giving that insight. You were talking about how you're dyslexic and how you've had to harness aspects of, of that condition in order to make an intuitive business plan. And that feeds into your other organisation, which is Diversity and Ability. So do you want to give a little bit more insight into the kind of work that you're doing at DNA and how it's impacting people? Yeah, again, it's what I'm very proud of. So DNA, I often say, is, is the company I needed when I was younger. And what, by that, what we do is we provide assistive technology support and training and study skills, strategies and mentoring and emotional mentoring for marginalised people. Often it's going to be people with registered disabilities and often it's people 
who would be considered to be you know neurodivergent. What I mean by that is could be examples of people say commonly known with dyslexia or dyspraxia or ADHD or autism. Neurodiversity or neurodivergency is a, is a fairly new term for a lot of people, but the work being done and delivered here is really about how we get lived experiences, i.e. people who can relate, people who have been marginalised both emotionally, mentally and socioeconomically, and how we can create jobs for people who have gone through those experiences and turn those experiences into assets. Why they are assets is because they're authentic. What I mean by that is that we've got lots of people who, for righteous reasons, be it trauma, be it learning isolation, be it just self-esteem. But we have so many people who won't necessarily engage in good support services or even free technology because, or free support um, because sometimes it represents that feeling of fear or powerlessness. So where assistive technology, of course, is enabling a lot of people, but it's also intimidating a lot of others. We've got to get through a point really where we look at technology just as a tool uh, and, and not this special device where only tech wizards can participate in and be excited by. We're living in a, in a digital by default world, a world that says, look, you know, and if you want expediency and justice and access to the law, you've got to think about online courts. If you want to borrow a book and return it, you've got to go online. If you want to sign up to your national health, local doctors, you need to go online. COVID is one example of how extreme that is in terms of support mechanisms and tracking and tracing and, and healthcare being online. But so is welfare. Even for those who are most marginalised that are dependent on, on social welfare and now have to go online. We're not worried whether you've got the internet or whether you don't know what to, to do when you're on it or whether you read. What we're saying is if you want your welfare, then you need to go online and you need to show that you are proving what you've done to justify your welfare, be it job searches, etc. We are not saying as a country we should assume that many people face illiteracy, that many people don't have a universal right and it doesn't exist for people to have access to technology or the internet. So for DNA, these tools, this technology is really about how we make sure that we can reinforce inclusion and equality and even social equity by creating jobs for people who historically have been marginalised in the workplace and yet have the very lived experience that is the asset we need. We need it for two reasons in DNA. We need it because without lived experiences, how do we know this even matters? How do we know this technology even works? How do we even know that we're able to bend the technology because it isn't good enough? And so that's one thing. The other aspect is how do we encourage marginalised people to participate if the people delivering all the support don't look like them? They don't look like them, then they look like they're perfectly supported, they're perfectly grown up in perfectly happy settings. I've not really faced these social barriers. Then why would we participate? I know my own experience when I was really coming to terms with learning differences and dyslexia, I think I lost count the amount of times someone told me Richard Branson was dyslexic. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's had anyone who's dyslexic i'm dyslexic as well it's one of the stories that definitely goes around that oh well you know there's some there's some people doing well with dyslexia it's like great <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely because at no point did richard branson come from a family where he would have financially struggled and no point was he ever going to feel like i will never get a job or that filling out this application form to even try for this job is really emotionally scary um, and full of judgment or fear nor would he really really i mean it's not to put light on because in fact i mean he's done some great work but but it's that we've got to get to a space where people who are, are facing profound difficulties and are finding the inner spirit to overcome them a get to share those stories but not do it in tokenistic ways mm. but really actually fundamentally do it in such a way that it draws people in 
in particular those who feel like, wow, I relate to this, I can feel this. I don't even know the details, but I know the safety of this when I see it. Uh, and I know that this person is speaking to me right now. And that's a real challenge. It's really tough to do because often those who are telling these stories the most, those who have the most agency and voice, are usually the people who can market themselves well, not necessarily the people we know most need to hear from. Um, I know that's not, maybe not a popular view, but it's one that I think is important. That is our job, especially, I suppose, mine now, now that I'm, I guess, more economically successful, is to be able to go and say, look, I should anticipate that it's not easy for people to tell these stories. I should anticipate the most important stories to hear will not be famous, but it matters anyway. Um, a really good example that I excite, I get excited talking about, I suppose, is about, if I think about the world at the moment, if I think about Greta Thunberg, okay, we, we can talk about how incredible and charismatic she is and what she's doing. But really, I mean, look, you know, three years ago, you know, as her mother said, she had an eating disorder. Three years ago, the bullying, the extent of the bullying was from teachers, not just to her fellow classmates. So striking at school and trying to, to, to find a voice when you truly don't feel you fit in. And even teachers are giving you a really emotionally hard time to such a point you're not eating, let alone coming to terms with uh, neurodivergent learning. And so. she's um, autistic. It's when we're talking about her neurodivergency, it's uh, yeah, so I should say that. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and yet Greta Thunberg calls it her superpower. Mm -hmm. I like that. But more importantly, what I like is here we are in that same two or three years where we're watching somebody being berated for not, not attending school at one point of her life to watching. G8 leaders queuing up to be in a room with her, <laughs> Do you know, sure. and I think that that's incredible. The message itself, of course, that's fundamentally more important. The message about climate emergency, of course, that's more important. But I can't help but look at uh, a young role model, a young girl with autism, and think, I wonder how many how many doors she's opening just by being herself, and how much safety she's creating for other young girls with autism fighting to find a sense of belonging in a world that really doesn't necessarily look for these things until and certainly doesn't talk about them until they're very famous i, I guess the excitement for me isn't that that is the excitement for me is really about the ones that we're missing and and whether we have the human potential in ourselves to look for it rather than wait till it's managed to fight its way to the top because uh, for every one of those stories um there's 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 a million other tragedies that's an amazing part of what i know from diversity and ability is that it's inclusion where you're not just looking for people to have a certificate to say this person's dyslexic. Your whole approach is to be able to say, how can we support those people who are undiagnosed, who don't know that they have dyslexia, but are, mm. are being affected by the issues, potentially sometimes even more so because they don't know and other people don't know. And how can you make inclusion an everyday aspect of what's going on rather than trying to do things in reverse when we'll only do something if we know someone has something? Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I like talking about things in terms of lived experiences, because by then I get to talk about unlock things around learning differences and assets rather than disabilities and learning difficulties and et cetera, et cetera. There are far too many what I call deficit models about how we look at people and, and our human interaction. So many of that is that we've decided what is acceptable ways of being, what is an, what is a who is an asset to the world we live in and who isn't? These are social concepts that have been invented. But if we take it down to the right level we should be at, well, then we're here to talk about what is a disabling situation and how do we address that disabling situation? But instead, we don't do that. We say, we say, this is a man with a disability. This is a man without a disability. 
Whereas none of that is very helpful if you're the person going through it. For DNA, it's about looking at saying, what is what is a disabling situation and how do we address that? And what is it that we've got to do to make sure it's not a person's responsibility to somehow be better than the very things that they were just born with? If they are physical differences, well, let's talk about those differences. But they don't have to be negative. It's important to not think of this stuff in sort of woolly terms of, oh, let's just love everybody. That's not going to help us either. It's really about saying, look, everyone's lived experience creates a diversity of thought. If somebody is a wheelchair user, then they're using a tool that helps them move around. But we should assume that many others will come who will also need such tools. So how do their experiences teach us to make the place that we live in easier to navigate around? And are we asking that experience well? Or are we just accommodating it every time it presents it to us? And if it presents us to ourselves as a problem, then we're going to lose people engaging with us. But if it presents us to us as a moment where we can look at the lived experience and say, right, we can do this better because it's teaching us something, then we're learning and we're improving our own human interaction. The remote control is a good example. I think I heard that in a conversation not that long ago, but it was designed for wheelchair users to change the channel on TVs, something as simple as that. And yet we all like having a remote control. In fact, whole generous generation can remember can't remember ever not having one whereas and i can remember as a kid watching a, a young friend of mine who was blind pressing his f- watch and listening to listen to it listen to him watch talk to him tell him the time um and God, i was you know i was born in 74 i remember listening to that watch in 1982 being marveled at it <laughs> you, know, <laughs> and, you know and now we're watching these things become mainstream if i have other blind users in 1982 using this watch it will probably be exciting for other blind people to be trained by somebody else who also uses a watch like that. Has 2020 transformed how your organisation provides meaningful development opportunities? Is your organisation re-evaluating its training needs? Are they looking for dynamic ways to engage with their employees? Cerebration is your partner in producing quality learning solutions. We have accredited expertise in designing and delivering both in-person and virtual training, as well as skilled e-learning developers and established facilitators. Our Herman Certified Practitioners are able to provide you with whole brain thinking services that enable your organisation to manage change, establish inclusive workplace practices, respond to new challenges, develop leadership, unlock potential and empower teams to self-generate solutions to problems. Find out more about how we can help your organisation by visiting our website at cerebration.space. These are both incredibly ambitious organisations. Were you worried when you set them up? What was the, the fear around doing it? In Zaytun, there's lots of things, really. You know, you literally could get shot. <laughs> um, and what I mean that is that we're working with families and farmers. We are seeing uh, land being stolen. Uh, we're seeing villagers defend that um, through peaceful protests all, all the time. We're seeing those peaceful protests ignored, um, ignored by press. So when you're there and you're physically in that space trying to to stand with people in social justice, you're risking your life at times. Do you know? As are every Palestinian family and farmer that does that every day without the ability to leave and travel back to the UK. Um, so that that's a real risk. The other risk is, in my case, yeah, certainly, setting up any business is, is, is nerve-wracking, but put, trying to put your time and your energy into it, knowing that, in my, in my case, my fears were, and, and they're, they're often there, they're still occasionally there, this sense that 
oh, I'm not good enough to do this, or I don't really know this stuff well enough. Who am I to do this? I've not done anything like this before. And, or I don't read spreadsheets very well. What kind of business person am I? All those things are sort of fears that I think, in all honesty, everybody has. Sometimes you hear them talked about in terms of imposter syndrome or, or self-limiting beliefs. They're there for everybody. I don't know really what I'd call them, but they're there. And sometimes they can be a useful guide. Sometimes they're a way of keeping you grounded to say, right, this is not a small thing you're doing. And this is not a hobby. And you are here and you're not here to play with people's lives or livelihoods. So get this right and really learn from their experiences to show you what right looks like. That's really important. So sometimes maybe those those fears guide ropes, really, guiding you through it. And then there's other times those fears are imbalanced. They're actually destructive. They're doing so much harm, they're preventing you from doing anything. In some people's lives, it stops them even getting out of bed. Um, so I think you've got to really sort of figure out how do you use those fears or those anxieties as tools? And can they be positive tools? Can they help you strike a balance? I often, uh, Jamie, I often think about these things and I think, okay, I've set up these projects. I really love being a father. I really love that I've mostly managed to get that balance right. I, I've really loved that I've got to learn from the lived experiences of so many people in my life and the, and the people who supported. And I've been exposed to that. And what that then leads me to think is perhaps egotistically, but I do feel we win these awards. Um, DNA was uh, the right, you know, for UK inclusive company of the year. And to know we didn't have those resources, and yet here we were. Uh, Zaytun wins Fair Trade Organization of the Year. It becomes consumers' favorite product of the year. It wins Soul Association. We won the Fair Trademark. We're the only company to have done that for Olive Oil. So when you see those things, I suppose you do find yourself thinking, well, crikey, we've done this, and part of me has done this, and I need to own a part of this to deal with those fears and to say, look, this belongs to me. But when those things are happening, part of your brain goes, ah, but, you know, it's not real. If only they knew what I'm really like. If only they knew that I wasn't really good at that bit. Or if only they knew that I needed help to do that stuff. You start dismissing everything. You start dismissing the victories that you've earned, that you've learnt, and you've fought hard for. So somewhere along the line, I think my takeaway from this was, and I needed help to do this. In fact, you know, a dear friend of both of ours, Adrian Gilpin, uh, Adrian who's hopefully listening to this, is a big part of that. And you're finding a space in your head to say, what if they're half right? And that's what I learned to come to terms with. Not if what if all those wonderful things people are saying or those awards we're getting are not real. But what if they're half real? What if all the compliments and the changes and the emotions that you've created what if it's half real? What does half real look like? And I personally think I'm comfortable with that being half real. I'm comfortable with feeling, okay, actually, all this stuff, be it DNA, be it Zaytun, be it just me as a dad looking after two wonderful children and, and, and being a husband to a wonderful wife. What if all the things they feel and say is half real? Then I'm pretty awesome. <laughs> and I'm really comfortable being able to finally say, "Yeah, actually, you know what? I'm pretty awesome." Just apply that to diversity and ability as well, because I think that this looks at the beginning of that journey, having to prove people right. When you set up an organisation, I can't remember the exact percentage. I think it's eighty percent of those in your employment at DNA are have neurodivergent or disabilities. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the, being able to prove that the total of all of those contributions has 
been been invaluable and done some incredible work with people, not just because of them being in the organization, but because what they are able to do because of their lived experiences, because it is unique in lots of aspects, to be able to support others and to create a, a social enterprise that has a huge impact on lots of people's lives. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Again, we, we won an award for the disability employment gap, which, you know, for fighting it. I'm glad, you know, it's 36%. I'm glad we won that award. It's not going to change at 36%. It's not going to change in my lifetime. Mm. Both you and I, sadly, will be dead before that can have the equity and the equality of not being at 36% mm. to see more disabled people working. So here we are as an organisation. The most organisations crow about saying we're an organisation and we've got 3% of our workforce self-discloses as disabled. And for my team, it's at 85%. Now, that doesn't mean that they are saying we're disclosing as disabled, but they are saying that they, they have what is what would be deemed as a protected characteristic or a disability. And I really think that, look, we're not here to collect wars on disability employment gap. What we are here to do, as I said earlier, is to make sure we have a meaningful and authentic experience with the people we're supporting. And how can we do that well unless we have a team made up of those same experiences? We do this that well because of so many lived experiences being the very asset that makes this real, that keeps it real. I think for so most country companies, compliance, legal compliance, reputation management is what they're going for. And compliance means you don't get sued, but it doesn't mean you include. And, and, and as a country, we've got an obligation to actually do better, to show we can do better. A generation after us is waiting for us to show how good this can be. We've proven that we can work in different ways pandemic has shown that, then we've never had a better time to recruit more disabled people, wheelchair users, lived experiences, people with physical differences who deserve to be working, but more importantly, deserve to for us to see what they have to offer in terms of the diversity of all. I want to go back to Zaytun. When you were setting up the business, what was the biggest challenges, particularly the story of being in the town hall and having to go through that kind of realisation of what was happening there? Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So early days, I guess, we were researching what to do. And a good colleague of mine who's still in Zaytun, 15 years on, uh, were trying to research what we what we were up against. You know, sadly, because of the nature of the occupation and number of checkpoints, it's easier for a person with a, uh, an international passport to travel around the West Bank than it is for Palestinians. And so I had seen different parts of the wall already being constructed, and I'd seen the size of it. And I'd seen what the plan was and we were in this one village and it was a very old village byzantine village actually wonderful one um and it was going to lose lose its its olive trees and when that happens there is no way that they can really stay on that village so a piece of history would disappear a thousand year old village or more than that would disappear from history so we had brought, brought lots of farmers heads together and the mayor together and different people in different parts of the village and the local villages to talk about the plan for zaytun and what we were going to do and, um, you know, in terms of our plans to do things, we needed a lot more thinking than we had had realised. And questions were being asked, you know. And one of the questions asked was, could we guarantee we could sell the oil once the families had got together to set the prices together and set pressing together? Um, why that's important is because before Zaytun, a lot of families were obviously selling their olive oil and their olive soap and their different things. But they were not working together as a co-op or cooperatives. The only thing that was a co-op was the olive press, but people were selling against each other. If you can imagine, 
if you're living in a village and you've got communities and family relationships, but you could still be trading against your neighbour because you're both olive farmers. So you're not necessarily working together to set quality standards or prices together. But that's precisely what we needed. We needed to be able to do that in order to reach the UK. So asking families and villages to make this change was, was profound. So a question from somebody asked was, could you guarantee you could sell the oil past the wall? And I said no. Which and I feel went down well. Yeah, it did. And it was a bit shocked because people really assumed that that's what we could. And we had the power to do that. You know, we were some big NGO that had come to do precisely that. Um, and I sort of realised that we were not quite it wasn't quite clear that we were just two people from an idea of a company that hadn't even yet been set up, <laughs> you know? And then, so the next question is, okay, if you can't guarantee you can, um, that you can bypass the wall, are you 100% sure that we've got to form co-ops together, set prices together and quality standards? And I said, absolutely, absolutely. Otherwise it won't work. It would just fall apart because there's only some families we're buying from and not others. It needs to be everybody working together, collectively together. And then somebody asked, the mayor asked, okay, have you ever sold olive oil like this before in this way as co-ops? And I said, no, no, I hadn't. Um, and then somebody else asked, there was a local religious leader said, um, have you even sold olive oil at all before? <laughs> and uh, no, and I said this was being translated in Arabic as well, so it's going from English to Arabic. And the answer there, I said, was, no, no, not at all. Never done it before. Um, <laughs> and so there was a bit of a, the moment really sort of dropped on the floor. And there was me really fifteen years ago doing my best not to mismanage people's expectations and not to lie, but realizing people need a lot more research. They need a lot of faith, and they need you to come up with more yeses. And those yeses have got to be sincere. They've got to be real. You can't just say yes for the sake of it. But you've also got to say, okay, how many meetings like this have people had? And it's heartbreaking. How many times have people gathered when they're desperate to hear one lame, lame brain idea from the last NGO to the next traveller to the next backpacker who said they're going to sort this all out? And then to realise, actually, you know, these are the folks who have been the custodians of these olive trees for hundreds and hundreds of years. These are the mothers that have fed their children when food has become scarce. These are the fathers that have kept their heads and their minds together when their own families are being, you know, as I said earlier, shot at. They are the experts of cultivating and protecting these trees. And they are the experts of cultivating the most wonderful olive oil in the world. They are here to teach me and teach us how great this can be. And we've got to be open to hearing that whilst at the same time not mismanaging their needs and expectations. So it took another year of going back saying, right, we've really got to draw a plan up and have a plan of attack and say, this is how we're going to do it. And if we are going to ask you to make lots of changes, we're going to do them because we know this is what's going to work. And we're absolutely sure of it. So it was a real kick in the butt. There was a quote that I remember from uh, one of the villagers that made me laugh about um, not having faith. Oh, just, yeah, he said, you know, I, well, he, he uh, yeah, he was a chap that, he's a famous poet, poet and he's a famous co communist um, poet. Really dear friend who's really still there, out there. but he's a well-known communist. And I suppose in, in parts of villages in Palestine, it's quite divided between those who are really strong communist, socialists or Marxist tendencies in their resistance and those who have more religious aspects to their resistance. But anyway, what he said was, look, if I'm going to listen to this guy waffling about things that aren't real, then I might as well go to the mosque and pray. And and I didn't understand the jokes. I didn't know who he was at the time. Uh, and they all started laughing because it was a very big, funny thing to hear this particular chap to say he's just going off to pray. And it made everyone laugh and it sort of made the humour work. Uh, and it was just a bit lost to me at the time. And I look back on it and can see why that was so funny.
and, and it, it, it's it's just i suppose it is is you know and i suppose that is what fearlessness is about it's about being connected to yourself not to just be fearless for the sake of it but quite the opposite it's about knowing actually we are born of limitations and and fears and and a lack of belonging and a lack of safety and in that we we are going to at times sabotage ourselves and at times we're going to look at things that will easily tell us yeah you should do this look they're laughing at you or you should do this because they're in total agreement you're no good at this and somehow you find a sense of humility as a strength and you find people who look at you like this, this is funny and you probably don't know what you're doing do you but you look like you're going to try and you look like you're really really going to try and i don't know why we're convinced you're going to try but we think you are and i suppose that was my takeaway you know in, at the time to meet people who looked at me in the same light that i would look at someone who's not quite sure of themselves but since actually come what may they're going to do it anyway and and we were really i guess made that kind of connection what um kind of positive stories do you draw upon to be able to push through potentially some of those negative experiences oh god counselors do you know there are so many um you know the, the negative stories it's weird isn't it because your body remembers them you know there's a famous book called the body keeps the count and your body does remember really negative moments and emotions but it doesn't remember details about them you know i don't think so i think for most people it doesn't the there's detail- a great quote which is trauma comes back as a reaction not a memory uh, it's very similar and my answer you said it is a you may not remember what they did but you remember how they made you feel and i think that's true i think that's really true but also and I, I, again I, I feel totally blessed to be able to say this that i've been surrounded by people's belief systems in ideas wacky ideas things that you know as i said even say too on paper this makes no sense dna on paper this looks too pioneering to be real um and yet it's just happening anyway. And you're just asking people, look, you know, you don't have to tell me you don't believe in it. You just need to get out of the way while I'm busy doing it. <laughs> you know, and, and that usually can only come from two things. One is an awful lot of self-confidence or, in my case, the opposite, where you don't have that at all. I don't think it comes from audacity. I'm not sure it even comes from self-belief either. I think it does come from something that is really about attraction, about people being attracted to somebody willing to try to give it their all. And I think it's an asset that, again, isn't talked about enough, that when you have really felt lost or marginalised in your youth, you can it can make you intrepid. It can make you carry on doing things, even though you don't, yourself don't feel it's pioneering, even though you yourself don't recognise how intrepid it is. I think I've been exposed to that, and I suppose I like to think that I've exposed people to that through me but i certainly can say i've seen it a lot in people people choosing to to run with an idea knowing that i don't necessarily have the resources or the structure to know where it's going to go and yet they want to be with it anyway and they want to add a part of their life to it and that's what sustains it and largely in businesses you know and and it's proven the oldest businesses in the uk they're always co-ops they're cooperatives they're where people will bend with the difficulties of businesses happening because they have a stake in it. They have agency and voice in it. Both DNA and Zaytuno are organisations that give voice and agency and a stake in it for lots and lots of people. And that's that's part of its charm and its robustness. There's some really interesting aspects there about bringing people through with you on that journey. Who was the kind of person you needed to be in order to take action and get what you want from it? So I guess it's somewhere along the line, it's just recognising that is... Is what you're doing, is it, is it, is it meaningful? And is what you're doing something that, you're, that excites you, even if it's difficult? Does it excite you? Does it matter to you? 
Um, I know folks, for example, and I suppose that's happened in my life, is they do, they get really well paid. They're doing such meaningless work. There's no nourishment in their daytime, and yet their salaries are very high. They spend an awful lot of money, I guess, in order to justify the, the sheer boredom and the lack of any real engagement in their day-to-day. And I don't know, I feel tragically sad for that. And then I see a lot of folks working on the front line, be it the NHS or in the front line of, of just human compassion and support, but getting paid so little. And yet knowing full well if that person didn't go to work that day, it would really mean something to somebody who desperately thrives on that connection with them. I don't know if that what that person is or to say what kind of person they, they are. I don't know what kind of person I am in that context, but I I do know it'd be odd if I wasn't a person who wasn't able to live within the principles of my values. Um, and and I certainly remember not being that person. You know, I certainly remember being a person who didn't know that their values could be their job. We've spoken a lot about the outcomes of both of these organisations and what they've been able to achieve, and the not just from an awards perspective, but that human connection perspective. What advice would you give to other people who are facing similar circumstances? I know I want to give you a real good soundbite that says, you know, persevere and don't give up and and etc etc. But maybe some things you should give up on because they're no good for you. They're not helping. They're not they're not nourishing your soul. I can tell you that when you know when you're winning, when it doesn't feel like work. Mm. And what I mean by that is, okay, it hasn't worked financially and it hasn't worked and you're not sure how to get security out of this. But you do know that your idea matters and you know not just because you feel it matters, but you can see a spark in somebody else. Somebody who may not have agency to make that financially strong for you, but they're just excited by it. You know, they're really mm. excited. And to trust that, to trust that feeling that you know other people can see this without necessarily reading it in a business plan. You know, they can feel it just from listening to you. And sometimes they're not just listening to the words you say, but rather how you, how you say them and how it makes them feel. That's how you know you have meaning. In terms of creating business plans so banks can invest in it or other people can join you to give financial support, well, those folks will come along and they will help and they'll do that stuff and they'll have that talent. They might not be creators, they may not be innovators, but they'll certainly have the talent to help you with that kind of work. Your job is still to convince them that it is so important to do that. And if you are not feeling it yourself, then dear God, no one else will feel it. But if you feel it yourself, you'll know when they do. You know, people will be animated around you. That's something I get to see a lot, actually. I don't get people to come back to me with feedback on my business plans. (laughs) (laughs) That's a deliberate choice at this point. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure I've even written any. But I have got is people's sense of you know and i can feel it when it's happening you reach right into the depths of somebody and you can sense their sense of belonging to what you've said their sense mm-hmm. of asp- excitement their own aspirations going oh dear god i want this to work i hope I, even if i never see this guy again i so hope that happens that because that was bloody good you know whatever that I, what that idea was just great um i get to hear that stuff all the time i really get to be, hear people sharing me things i think oh god well, you know even if it was one day a month i'd love to help you can make this real because yeah. somebody should do that. That's great, you know. Um, and it goes into that whole kind of people by people. They will invest in the idea of you and you believing in it. Absolutely. And, you know, without, and it's really credible to say you've got righteous reasons not to believe in yourself. It's really credible that the best ideas might come from people who have been so marginalised that it's traumatic. And it's really credible to say even more so that idea should happen even more so that person should do it. So you're facing a whole sea of things. And self-belief and and lack of belief often prevents a lot of good things from happening in the world. But it's also righteous to feel it. It's righteous to feel lost in that space too. It's righteous even to sometimes feel, I've got to give in to that. But how long for? And then you've got to ask yourself, who am I taking this away from? Am I taking it from myself? Maybe. Can you live with that? 
maybe, but can you really live with taking this spirit and these ideas away from the very people who need it the most when they really need you to rise? You know, can you live with that? And often, none of us can. And I suppose that that's what or inclusion can look like when you're willing to fight for somebody you barely know, but that's who you're made of and what you're made of. That's that is that's the fearlessness that really is in you, even if it doesn't, even if it's, you're not using it to protect yourself. Why is it important for other people to take action? You have decided to take those actions, and there's an important reason behind that. Why is it important that people do it? Because time, we, you know, time. We're not here long. We're just not here long enough. None of us, really. So, so it, it, it can say, look, people should all care about a certain thing that I care about, and it matters to me a lot. I am almost baffled that we can have more people watching Love Island, for example, than than um, yeah, the things that I think are really moving or touching and i'm also reminded that humans need to just rest and have i don't know bad tv in order to chill out with and, and not care about things and sometimes that's meaningful too that is really then going to be a challenge about are we striving to be authentic are we making time not to just to react to things but to process and to be with things even in the most uncomfortable places that's not easy to do but it's something that is required of us to say look but know that your time here matters and that it matters to somebody and it mostly might matter to people you've never even met. I think that's a really nice point to be able to end on. So Atif, I just want to say thank you so much. That was a very enlightening conversation and really powerful for the kind of work that we're talking about. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to to share with us and to get involved with this podcast. Yes, yeah, all right. Thank you, Jamie. I really enjoyed the questions. Yeah. I just wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you to Atif for joining us for that podcast. I was really struck by the impact that both organisations are having in very different ways with a very different group of marginalised communities, but are really leveraging the skills, knowledge and lived experience that people have to be of benefit to the world. And I think that was a very powerful thing that came through from what Atif was talking about. If you want to find out more information on Diversity and Ability or Zetaroon, please check out their website and social media. And thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thanks for listening to Celebration with Jamie Brett. If you like our show and want to hear more, check out our podcast channel at anchor.fm forward slash celebration. If you are interested in the work Celebration does, visit our website at celebration.space and please leave us a review on wherever you get your podcasts from.